0: Hello, this is Leslie Garfield Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today I'm speaking with Professor Michael Morley about statutory interpretation. In this episode, Professor Morley, Associate Professor of Law at Florida State University Law School, explains with precision how to interpret a statute using one of the three methods employed by members of the court, depending on their own interpretive bent. Specifically, he defines for us the methods used by textualists, interpretists, and purposivists, and shares how students should employ these approaches on an exam. Before we begin, I want to remind you, if you like our podcasts, we would really appreciate if you could rate us, subscribe on any of the platforms on which you listen. And of course, all of our podcasts remain available on www.lawdefact.com. All right, here's my discussion with Professor Morley. Anyway, so like I was saying, I was listening to your um, Ipsa Dixit podcast about... Um, nationwide injunctions. Na- thank you, about nationwide injunctions. Yes, it was it was very, very interesting. And it I guess it kind of talked a little bit about what we're going to talk about today. I mean, not completely, but this idea of statutes and their implications and statutory interpretation.
1: Statutory interpretation often isn't about... Knowing or being able to discover the one right answer, right? Like in most of their other classes, they're they're putting together outlines, right? To have a contract, you need offer, acceptance, consideration, right? There, there, there are black and white elements. You memorize the elements, and then you you look in fact patterns for whether or not those elements are satisfied, or how you can try to argue those elements are satisfied. And at least the the thinking is, if you know the rules, and if you apply the rules. You should be able to come to fairly determinate answers with statutory interpretation. One of the things that makes it both very, very interesting and exciting to teach, but also can be a little bit disconcerting, is the the, the one of the main the rest of the classes. Courts have not yet agreed on one single correct method of statutory interpretation and all of the cases that are selected
2: for the casebook whatever your casebook is the whole reason why the cases are selected is because these are cases where the
1: outcome of the case will hinge on what approach does the court take what methodology does the court take and so most statutory interpretation classes divide schools of statutory interpretation into three categories either textualist originalist, excuse me, textualist, intentionalist, or purposivist. Textualist, intentionalist, or purposivist.
0: Okay. And you know, I just, I have a quick question. I mean, is when you talk about the different courts, are you talking about courts within the federal system, different circuits? Or are you talking about different state courts versus different federal courts?
1: All, all, I mean, I'm I'm talking about different justices sitting on the Supreme Court right now. Oh you wow! Know, different okay. majority opinions on the Supreme Court over time. Okay. Even different judges on even different judges you know, potentially sitting on the same the same state court. Got right. it. For for the most part, right? We don't have methodological stare decisis. We don't have a single consensus in most jurisdictions that here is the one. Approach to statutory interpretation will take that if, hmm. you, if you look at any case on its own, right? You can pull a Supreme Court case written by Justice Scalia, right, and right. he will tell you we apply textualism. You can apply. You, you can then take a Supreme Court case from that same term written by a different justice, and they're adopting a purposivist approach hmm. or, or an entirely different approach. And so, one of the one of the things that becomes quickly apparent by the looking through the cases that are typically taught in this course, is the outcome of a case can hinge entirely on which theory of statutory interpretation, which methodology the court applies. Okay. And so for, for students trying to learn this, it, it can be a little bit disconcerting because ultimately there isn't one right answer, right? What the law is, what the statute means, Often depends in part on, in, in fact, depends primarily on which theory or which method the courts going to apply. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in part, that helps that helps demonstrate to students why recent controversies over judicial appointments get the attention that they do. And even moving, you know, even outside the area of constitutional interpretation, which is what most people you know, immediately tend to, to jump to. The your theory of statutory interpretation, your method of statutory interpretation, is going to affect how you how you think about how you approach cases in virtually any area of the law. Because I mean, in the modern day, most areas of the law are governed pervasively by statutes and
0: regulations. All right. So, so explain to me the different the three different approaches: um, textual, intentional, and purposeful.
1: Sure. So, so textualism folk as its name suggests focuses on the plain meaning of the statute and the the argument the textualists use is that the text of the statute is the only thing that has and i'll I'll talk about federal law here though the same theory applies at the state level the text of the statute is the only thing that has actually gone through The legislative process. If you think about Article One, Section Seven of the Constitution, right? How a bill becomes a law, right? It has to go through both chambers of Congress. It has to be presented to the President for his signature. If if, if he if he vetoes it, then the Houses of Congress have the chance to override the veto. The text of the law is the only thing that has gone through bicameralism, meaning the two Houses of Congress. It has gone through presentment, meaning it's been uh, given to the President. And so, under our Constitution, under Article One. The text of the law is the only thing that counts as the law. And so in trying to figure out what the law is, the court should confine itself to the text. And so in trying to figure out what the text means, textualists will refer to contemporaneous dictionaries. They will look at dictionaries from the time period in which the the law was enacted to see what the general public understanding of that language would have been unless the court determines that it's a specialized language, a term of art, in which case then it will try to figure out what the meaning of that term of art would have been at the time within the the relevant professional or, or other interpretive community. And then textualists tend to rely very heavily on what are called canons of construction. And I, I I always emphasize this is a canon with one N in the middle. In the middle kind of idea,
0: like it's like parole and parole, um, right? Like parole evidence and parole, um, yeah.
1: And so you're, you you often can deploy them like other canons, and that you're usually trying to blast your opponent away with them. <laughs> but basically, they're they're just they're just rules of rules of statutory interpretation that textualists use. And generally speaking, there are and again, I mean you you. You'll find people who, who adopt different breakdowns, but, but roughly speaking, there are two broad types of canons. There's what's called the semantic canons, which are generalizations or presumptions about the way that people talk, the way that people use the English language. So one, one of uh, Famous example of a semantic canon is what's called expressio unius. Okay. And a a lot of these canons have Latin
2: names.
1: (laughs) And it it basically just means the expression of one thing implies the exclusion of other things. And so, if you, again, to, to, to think of a plain English example, if you tell your kids you can have broccoli or string beans. By expressly identifying what they can have, this canon says, you're implicitly telling them you can't have M&Ms, you right. can't have hot dogs. Right, right. And so the express a canon says, if a statute expressly says it applies to certain circumstances, or it applies under certain conditions, or you have to do certain things in order to invoke its protection, by expressly listening specifying or identifying certain things the statute is implicitly saying and not other things and not other circumstances and not un- under other conditions
0: okay there 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 are other semantic canons that that uh, the courts use for example if you have a list and so and the list will say for example you are not allowed to destroy
1: papers records files or other things Right. The phrase "other things on its own" appears very broad, right? I mean, yeah. others, in fact, right, to, to, this is basically a variation on a recent Supreme Court case where um, the, the, the federal federal statute, the, the Dodd-Frank Act, prohibited uh, pro, had a statutory prohibition against destroying records, files, other tangible things. and there were fishermen out in the middle of, out in the middle of the ocean. Who had engaged in the legal fishing as the Coast Guard were, was coming up to them? They threw some fish overboard in order to basically get rid of the evidence, and they were prosecuted under Dodd Frank for frustrating, interfering with this federal investigation, interfering with their Coast Guard investigation by getting rid of these, by getting rid of the fish.
0: So the so fish the, are the other the, thing, right? The, the fish, fish are. Were, well, that was the yeah.
1: argument. The yeah. government yeah. argued fish were other things, right? And so the Supreme Court said, you know, if, well, if you look at just that language on its own like yes fish are a tangible thing mm-hmm. however if you look at it in the context of the list right papers files records or other tangible things read right, you have to you have to interpret that broad catch-all as being as referring to things that are similar that share the same characteristics of everything else in the list and so right obviously most people do not take notes on fish. <laughs> <So> <laughs> the, 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 that statutory language has to be read in context, has to be read as referring to other things that are similar to the, that are similar to the rest of the list. And so they wound up actually uh, throwing out, throwing out the, the conviction there. So you have these semantic canons, which mm-hmm. purport to make generalizations about how people use the English language you know what the English language means, and so textualists will say even if the the, the text of a statute seems ambiguous or it, it, it can apply in multiple ways, we'll try to at least narrow down its range of meaning. We'll we'll try to either eliminate incorrect meanings or hopefully even settle on the best meaning by using these semantic canons, these generalizations about how people talk. Textualists will also use. The second main category of canon is what's what's called the substantive canons. So these are rules that that attempt to, rather than being about the English language, these are rules that attempt to incorporate outside substantive values into constitutional
2: interpretation. So some of these might take the form of tiebreaker rules. Mm-hmm. Like
1: the, the most famous one is the rule of lenity, right? right. If, you, if, you have, if you have a criminal statute and you've applied all of your other tools of statutory interpretation and you're still unclear, it is still ambiguous, it's still uncertain whether the statute applies to the defendant's conduct or not, the rule of lenity then is a substantive canon, a textualist will apply, that says basically tie goes to the runner, that, that if you've used your other methods of interpretation – and the law is still ambiguous, then because we value notice, right? The yeah. we value the the fact that people have to have notice that what they're doing is illegal, because we want to have a presumption in favor of freedom, the rule of lenity says you construe the statute more narrowly in the defendant's favor. So that that's an example of of showing, right, of of trying to incorporate notice freedom into statutory interpretation. Mm-hmm. Other substantive canons take the form of what's called clear statement rules that a, that a court will refuse to interpret a statute a particular way unless there is clear statutory language that requires that interpretation. So, so these are, these are you know, between the semantic canons and the substantive canons, these are rules that textualists use, in order to try to tease out as much meaning as they can from the four corners of the the statute itself. So it makes assumptions about the use of language, it makes assumptions about the underlying background values that the Constitution says we have to protect. Um, and yeah, Obviously, we, we could go on about substantive canons for a long time. There, there's the constitutional avoidance canon that says if you have multiple interpretations of a, of a law and one of them raises serious constitutional issues, you go with the other one, that mm-hmm. we're going to assume that Congress does not come close to potential constitutional violations. Congress does not intend... To burden constitutional values, unless the clear language of a law requires us to reach that conclusion, right? There's federalism-related canons. There's there, there's presumptions against waving sovereign immunity. So through all of these tools, textualists try to, in their as as they would argue, objectively constrain judicial discretion. To tr- the, the goal of textualism is to try to make statutory interpretation as determinate as possible. But given particular language, given particular canons, it should at least be somewhat predictable how a court would come out.
0: And so is it fair to say that textualists are kind of committed to the text of the language that's in the statute and that they're committed to construe it in a way that is consistent with the words that are on the page?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's a, a textualist will say their goal Isn't to figure out what Congress was thinking. Their goal isn't even necessarily isn't necessarily even to figure out what interpretation would be best for society or would be most effective in implementing a statute. They're really focusing just on that we are governed by the text. The text is the only thing that is the law, and so let's figure out what this text means.
0: Got it. All right. So that that's textualism. So now let's talk about the um, intentional. Um, interpretations.
1: Sure. So in, in, intentionalism says that the law isn't the text itself. The law is what was in the minds of the legislators when they enacted the text. And so the text is one piece of circumstantial evidence, a very important piece of circumstantial evidence, but the text is basically a piece of circumstantial evidence. That gives you insight into what Congress or what the legislature actually intended. But if there is a conflict between the way the statute actually was drafted versus what the legislators thought they were doing or what the legislators intended to be doing or how the legislators had understood that language, then an intentionalist would say, we go with we go with what congress was intending and so this is one of the reasons why you see big debates over the use of legislative history in interpreting statutes right when, mm-hmm. when congress passes a law there's a lengthy legislative process that leads up to it there might be other bills that were introduced uh at roughly the same time trying to do the same thing and right if congress did not adopt those bills Right. If, if Congress went with one particular version, the fact that it rejected other bills might give you some insight. OK, whatever the law is that Congress passed, we should interpret it differently than these bills that it rejected. There will usually be committee hearings. Right. They will hear testimony from witnesses. The witnesses will tell them here's the problem that we're facing, here is the problem we want this law to fix, here are our thoughts, our views on the law. And so that committee hearing will generate a transcript, usually like multiple hundreds of, of, of pages long. Mm-hmm. And based on based on the the members' statements during the hearing, based on the witness testimony that they got, you can get a sense of what was leading congress to try to enact this law after the after the the law gets after the bill gets through committee there will often be floor debates so the sponsor of the bill will usually will usually get up on the floor will introduce the bill will explain the bill opponents of the bill might get up and warn about the bad consequences there will be you oftentimes there will be what's called a colloquy where one member will ask the sponsor or will ask the committee chair a series of questions about the bill. And so that colloquy, then, is, uh, is an opportunity for the sponsor or for the chair of the committee it came out of to explain what the bill does. And so these floor statements and these colloquies give evidence, give insight into what the members were intending, what they were thinking, what particular, why particular provisions were or weren't in there. Most bills, when they emerge from committee, are also accompanied by committee reports, and the committee report is a, doc- is a document generated by the committee staff, which goes through each section of the bill, one section at a time, and says, "Here's what here here's what this section means. Here's why we put this section there." The committee report will usually give background on the bill, explain why the bill was drafted, why the committee voted for the bill. It will often summarize the hearings that led up to the bill. And so particularly because the committee report is drafted by the committee that had jurisdiction over it, is drafted by the specialists who focused on it, it's often regarded by intentionalists as a key piece of evidence about what the, about what the legislation means. And so intentionalists will mine legislative history, right? They will go through committee reports. They will go through floor the votes on the bill. If certain amendments were proposed but rejected, then an intentionalist will say, well, look, Congress had the opportunity to add that language to the bill. They rejected that language. So that means they didn't want the bill to, to do that. By going through the, but the floor votes, by going through the debates, the colloquies, the committee reports, the hearings, intentionalists will try to put together a picture of what they think were in the members' heads, what they think the members were trying to do, and will, will interpret the, the law, so to speak, based on that intent and so there there was a period in, in particularly supreme court history where you would have entire cases about statutory interpretation where they didn't even mention the text or there, there was there was there there was one particular case that textualists like to bring up as a joke where the court says since the legislative history was of no use to us like as a last resort we turn to the text
2: <laughs> to say that mm-hmm. and and
1: so the the, the thinking is or from an intentionalist perspective, the thinking is: right, the law, the, the text of the law, right? It could be drafted imperfectly. There could be mistakes in it. It could, it, it could be unclear. Rather than purporting to be governed by the text of the law, you should just look at the text as a tool for figuring out what the law really is, which is that intent of the of the legislature and so intentionalists will focus much much more heavily on legislative history whereas textualists will reject legislative history textualists will say legislative history did not go through the legislative process right a committee report just reflects the views of that committee the the
2: house doesn't vote on it the other chamber doesn't get to vote on it the senate doesn't vote on it Mm -hmm. also textualists will point out Committee reports are
1: very subject to manipulation, that it's very easy for lobbyists to reach out to committee staff to sneak language into a committee report that can never get through the House, yeah. that, that if they know it would have been too controversial to try to amend the, the language of the law, they can just try to sneak language into the into the committee report because, again, that never gets voted on, that never goes to the, the other chamber, it never goes to the president. And so a, a textualists argue there is the only thing you know for sure that both chambers of Congress and the President has the chance to take action on is the is the text of the bill. You don't know if the you don't even know if people read the committee report, you don't know if people agreed with the committee report, you don't you don't even know that the committee report accurately represents the the majority's view. And so that's been one of the, the major controversies of throughout statutory interpretation about what do we do when the text of the bill deviates from what appears to be the legislative intent. I mean, this was one of the big controversies over the Obamacare Act, the Affordable Care Act in King Fee Burwell, where there was statutory language that said that uh, subsidies to purchase health care plans were only available in were only available to people who bought their plans through exchanges established by a state. Mm -hmm. And so the argument was there were many states that hadn't established exchanges, that they just relied on the federal government on the Department of Health and Human Services to create exchanges for them because they refused to create their own. And so there was a textualist argument that said, look, under the plain text of the Affordable Care Act, The government is only allowed to make subsidies available to people who bought their health plans through exchanges established by the state. So these dozens of other states that didn't establish exchanges where they're using the the federal government exchange, those people aren't allowed to get aren't allowed to get subsidies. And if that argument had been if that argument had been adopted, if subsidies had been cut off then in all of the states where the state hadn't established the exchange, or as the federal government had had, it would have basically led to a black hole where most people then wouldn't have been able to afford to buy healthcare plans through the exchange. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people simply wouldn't have done so. The pool of people on the exchanges then would have been sicker, leading to higher payouts for the companies, higher premiums, and it would have led to a death spiral where eventually the exchanges would have been ploded. And so that was a clear-cut example of a clash between textualism where the textualist said, look, everyone knows what a state is, everyone knows what it means to be established by a state everyone agrees those, you know, those other exchanges were not established by a state, they were established by the federal government, clear cut case whereas intentionalists would argue that's clearly not what Congress intended this was, the, this was a 2500 page law it was extraordinarily complex, the fact that Provision was either you know in, in artfully drafted or potentially even misdrafted should not be used to reach a conclusion that could cause the entire system to to collapse. And so, rather than focusing just on what the text of the law means, and to be to be clear, the majority also made arguments that they that they that they present as textualist. But I think a a very fair reading of King v. Burwell was really more from a practical perspective that it clearly could not have been Congress's intent to create this system that was heavily dependent on subsidies and then prevent – and I think it might have even been most people in most (coughs) states from being able to to get subsidies just because of who created their exchanges –
0: you know, it's interesting because it, it, it's, it's so analogous to contract law because I feel almost like um, there's a contract and then there's all the pre negotiations. And when you read a contract, you can't really read into it the negotiations, although sometimes courts will when they're interpreting a term. And it's kind of similar to textualists because they're looking at the contract. And then the um, interpretists are looking at the pre trial negotiations to see what they meant when they signed the contract. So I can that's, see- that's absolutely right. That, that's absolutely right. I, I think there are a lot of close parallels. I actually teach contract as well, so oh. think right, you right. there, there are a lot of close parallels between
1: sort of the New York plain meaning right. approach to to the c- contract interpretation and the, you know, the more California right. right actual intent right broader approach. Right. Where who you see the word all? Maybe it means some. Maybe it means none. We don't know. Like <laughs> so we're, we're, we're trying to. We're,
0: we're, we're, we're trying to do so. I you know I teach I teach contract law too and so with, with apologies to California or maybe to New York I always say you know New York uptight they're only going to do what you know is in the four corners whereas California is so kind of free-flowing and loosey-goosey we're going to look at everything you know <laughs> <laughs> anyway um all right so let's move forward to what the third the third approach so is purposivism. Mm-hmm. so purposivism was was one of the predominant
1: modes of statutory interpretation at the at the turn of the century, certainly toward toward the toward the beginning of the the twentieth century, and it, it's most closely associated with a with a Supreme Court case called uh, Church of the Holy Trinity. And purposivism says purposivism gives the least respect to the text of a statute. Purposivism says. Rather than trying to figure out what the statute means, we should instead look at the purpose. Why was the statute enacted? What was the harm? What was the evil, or to use the classic term, what is the mischief? That's known as the mischief rule. What is the mischief at which the statute was aimed? And when we are are confronted with a a statutory dispute, when we're confronted with with a question of statutory interpretation, rather than trying to parse the meaning of the language itself, we should should resolve the case in whatever way would best achieve the statute's goals or purposes. And so purposivists clearly come out and say... A statute might be over-inclusive, where it might apply to some situations that don't achieve the goals. So in that case, we'll basically create implicit exceptions. We will, even if the statutory text appears broad or appears sweeping, we will cut back on the statutory text and we will we will just imply the existence of exceptions. Or there might be other circumstances where the text is narrower. Than the problems that the legislatures were seeking to address, and so even though the text on its own doesn't seem to apply to a particular situation, we will stretch it, we will expand it, we will read it as if as if it applies there. And so, in in uh, in, in Church of the Holy Trinity, it, it was actually an an immigration dispute in terms of whether or whether or not. It was illegal for a church in the United States to bring over a minister from a foreign country to be there to be their pastor to to provide you know, to, to provide religious services here. And there there was an there was a federal immigration statute that prohibited American company or prohibited people in America, in, 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 including the uh, at least according to the government, including churches mm-hmm. from bringing people over into America to perform services of any kind. And this was, a, again, a, a straightforward conflict between textualism versus purposivism, where from a textualist perspective, there was really no doubt that a pastor would be providing services, was being brought into the country to provide services according to the, the plain meaning of the word. But the Supreme Court adopted a purpose of this perspective, and it said, look, the purpose of this statute, the reason the statute was enacted had nothing to do with religion, had nothing to do with religious services. The main fear was that that was uh, manual labor. It it was a fear that basically low-skilled Americans would be facing too much competition and so rather than facing the possibility of wages going down, rather than facing the possibility of unemployment, Congress passed this law in order to limit the influx of unskilled labor, of manual labor, that the purpose of this law, as the court seated saw it, would not be furthered by applying it in this context. And so despite its—and and one other point to raise, the law actually had some exceptions— but none of those exceptions applied applied to uh, a religious minister mm-hmm. and so again from a textualist perspective expressio unius the expressio unius canon we talked about earlier would say look you've listed some exceptions none of them apply to the pastor and so by expressing some exceptions by including some exceptions you're implicitly saying that's it there are no other hidden secret implicit exceptions the majority adopting the purpose this approach disagreed and said applying the the law in this context will not further the purposes of the statute and one of the other things the case is famous for is the court basically said your re- re- religion is central to the to the united states religion is a strong public value and not only would this would this interpretation not further the purposes of the statute but we're going to assume congress did not have the purpose Of interfering with religion, and in in fact, the Supreme Court, one of the 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 much more controversial aspects of the opinion, the Supreme Court singled out Christianity and and basically said we're going to we're going to assume Congress did not intend to did not have the purpose of interfering with. Uh, the the ability of Christian churches to to import ministers that the, the court said the United States is a Christian nation and so based on its assumptions of Congress's purpose at the time it said we're we're just not applying the, the law in this context so again clear cut distinction between what textualism what the text says what reasonable interpretations you get from the text what the meaning what the terms of the meaning were versus a purposivist approach where the court really didn't care what the text said the court instead made assumptions about what the purposes of the statute were what the overvailing overriding public values at issue were and regardless of the 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 actual contours of the legislative compromise that was hammered out the, the, the court came to a a purposivist conclusion
0: Wow. Interesting. All right. So let me, this is great. This is really helpful. Let me take you back to like the the 1L student here. And so the 1L student is, is now has mastered the, or, or the ideas of these three different approaches, textualists, inter, intentionalists, and purposivists. <laughs> um, and the question now becomes, they have a statute on an exam and they have to decide how to interpret it. Would you advocate that they take each of the approaches one after the other and just kind of way which they think is best, or how would you approach this issue on an exam? So, in, so basically there are two approaches
1: that a professor can take in crafting a statutory interpretation question. The first is the, the professor gives the hypothetical and says, how would you resolve this from X approach, right? So in some cases the question might specifically tell you to apply a particular approach, in which case... Obviously you want to do that. And then in considering counter arguments, right, in considering potential rebuttals to that position, you might try to you you might try to identify potential weaknesses that other approaches would suggest, but then of course, right, applying the approach that the professor asked for, you would you would reject it from that particular perspective. The other, the other way that a professor could ask a question is simply saying, here's a here's a problem, or, here's a statute, here's a, here's a regulation, here's the fact pattern, does the statute apply? It, or, you know, how who wins? Mm-hmm. In that case, then, I think you're absolutely right. That In order to score the most points, in order to provide the best, most comprehensive answer possible, you need to walk through each of the theories of statutory interpretation. And the way in which you you go about uh applying each of the theories right will you need to make sure you cover all the bases so for example textualism you want to walk through in your head all of the semantic canons which semantic canons might apply here you want to walk through the substantive canons you want to identify each potentially applicable textualist rule or canon that you can right the 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 rule against surplusage the principle of meaningful variation, right? All of the textualist tools in the, in, the, in the textualist toolbox there, you want to see which of those apply to the fact pattern. For, for intentionalists, you're going to want to focus on the hierarchy of legislative history, right? We talked about different types of legislative history. But there's generally a consensus that certain types are more persuasive than others, right? Committee reports... Are uh, committee reports are persuasive conference reports are the most persuasive statements of a bill's statements of a bill's sponsor or statements of a committee chair are the most persuasive type of floor statements. Then below that statements of other supporters of the bill are kind of you know, mid-level persuasive. Then statements of the bill's opponents, the court will give the least weight to because the fear is that opponents of the bill are just, are just trying to sink it. Um, and then Post-enactment legislative history, things that Congress says or does after a law is enacted, is regarded as the lowest form of legislative history, the least persuasive form of legislative history, because the thinking is once a law is enacted, then there's basically no constraints to individual members of Congress just going on the floor and trying to manipulate the record, right, right. trying to say, well, here's what that law that right. we just passed really meant. Right. And so when you're doing your intentionalist answer, not only is it important to weave in all of the relevant parts of legislative history, but recognize the weight to attribute to each of them, right? Recognize which are the more powerful, the more persuasive forms versus the less persuasive forms. For purposivism, for a purposivist answer, you want to look at All of the the types of evidence that purposivist rulings rely on. So a purposivist is going to give special weight to the title of a bill. Right? The the title of a bill or a title of a law gives you often insight into what its purpose is. If If there is a preamble, the preamble can give you insight into the purpose. Background, social context, right? Again, the mischief rule is, is a big part of purposivism, right? What is the evil at which this this law was targeted? So, as you go through each of these theories of statutory interpretation, there are different hallmarks, right? There are there are there are different there are different aspects of the fact pattern. That those that each theory is going to find salient, and so making sure you apply right for textualists all of the right canons, all of the right principles; right for intentionalists that you draw on the, all of the relevant sources of legislative history and you give them their right weighting, and then for purposivists that you draw on all the relevant indicia of a legislative purpose. That I mean,
2: for statutory interpretation, it's really hard to hide the ball. Right, right. I mean, everything <laughs> you need is going
1: to be there in the fact pattern and so just making sure that you extrapolate as much as you can you present your arguments obviously and this is just general advice right a clear well-organized fashion
0: um well this was absolutely perfect i really learned a lot and i so appreciate it and, and i'm always happy to draw an analogy to contracts or torts or anything like that <laughs> <laughs> so and you know i think when, when we first met i explained that i went to university of florida i know you're at fsu but that's okay we can work <laughs> together <laughs> on this um thank you so much michael i, I truly truly appreciate you taking the time So that's my discussion with Professor Michael Morley on statutory interpretation. I'm sure you enjoyed it. Thanks, as always, to www.bensound.com for the music, and enjoy your day.